Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Isabella Zwack of the Zwack Distillery and also Dobongo in Hungary. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm very well. Now that I'm sitting in front of you, very well. Thank you. Nice to have you here. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. It's my first time (laughs) in a podcast. Oh, okay. Well, mine too. (laughs) (laughs) It's always the first time when you turn on the mics. Your family has a long history in distilling. Yes, they definitely do. Um... Do you, do you want me to tell it? Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> Let's go from the top. Archbishops. <laughs> Emperors. War, immigration, revolutions. Um, so my great-great-great-grandfather. So I'm the sixth generation Zwack family member. And the founder of the company was a doctor. And he actually wasn't really a doctor. He he dealt in herbs and spices. Because what very few people remember is that, that before we had medicines, we had herbs and spices and we used to make all kind of um, uh, potions from them and um, what people discovered like all of these monasteries across Europe were taking all of these herbs and so you had a herbal remedy for a sore throat for uh, for this for that sleep and also some to digest so they would use these herbs and spices to make drinks that helped with your digestion and you know all of these Austrian Austro-Hungarian emperors were going hunting and were doing these huge feasts and banquets and then they needed things to digest. But what they discovered early on is that alcohol improves the extraction from herbs and spices. So like you put a tea bag in water, alcohol is better than water is. So they started using alcohol to actually extract the elements from the herbs and from the spices. And then in sort of the mid-1800s, they discovered that they actually, if they made these things drinkable, if they added something sweet, so honey or sugar or caramel, then people actually enjoy drinking it. And that's when the big culture of herbal drinks started. Italy and Germany and Austria and lots of European countries and Hungary, obviously. So we started then and my, so my great, Dr. Zvak was an apothecary. He dealt in herbs and spices, and he was the sole purveyor to the Emperor Franz Josef II. And so he came up with this drink called Unicum, which is in a round bottle with a cross on it. It's a very cool package. Thank you. Well, you know, if you um, 
I really think that if today we were to brief the best marketing agencies in the world, then we would say, you know, come out with something so unique, so outstanding, they wouldn't be able to. And at the time before, you know, before the word marketing, before um, before they, they understood how important it was to differentiate yourself, they were making a round bottle, already that, they didn't exist. They were making as their main sort of logo, they had a, a, a red cross. Then we went into a legal back in a battle with the actual red with cross. the red cross <laughs> so we had to i can see that happening so that's pretty had, funny though yeah. so we had to change it to gold but anyway so a cross on it so it's just the name unicum which means unique in latin so it's very 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 iconic and the recipe itself of what he created was again a very interesting recipe in that i often wonder you know i imagine this man sitting in his laboratory and thinking okay you know 10 grams of this five grams of that and his wife's like, why don't you come to bed? And he's like, no, I'm trying to measure the grams. <laughs> yes. And, and also, it was really strange is that the recipes remain the same. But if you change it just a bit today, for instance, it just all falls apart. It's really complicated. So he anyway, he found out this recipe. Part of the herbs and spices are distilled because he gathered that if you distill them, they give they contribute sort of the aromatics to the drink. And part of them are macerated those adds sort of the body and the weight and the color texture and then and then it's oak aged for six months in this big hungarian oak hungary is actually really famous for making oak I shouldn't say this but a lot of french oak is actually hungarian and they put a nice stamp on it um well a lot of french people are hungry too so <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's why they're so, so, so good at dining. Yeah. So good at dining. So anyway so we've been making these this drink unicum and other herbal liquors since the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, and been doing it ever since. Hungary's always been strategically ill-placed on the European map, in that it was in the middle. So it was always having one army coming through it one way or the other. It was also very strategically misallied with the wrong uh, allies on both world wars, which wasn't very fortunate or clever. So we, we were always being invaded. So, so yes, yeah. So my family history, I mean, it goes through the, I mean, they were, yeah, they had to hide during World War II because they were partly Jewish. They almost got killed by the local Arrow Cross, which were the, 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 the Hungarian Gestapo was called the Arrow Cross, Nilash. They were, they were very brutal, and very famous for, for, well, for being very, very dangerous. They would take Hungarian Jews by the uh, Danube and then they would tie them in a tight knot and they would shoot one of them and the rest would drown and that's why it was called the Red River. Anyway, so my father actually almost was taken to the Danube but then he survived that and um, he survived jogging under the bombs because he was always he was um, sort of a functioning anorexic. He was always very, very thin and wanted to remain that way so he would go jogging under the bombs which Everybody teased them to this day. Um, and then... Uh, the while, while there was bombing, he would go jogging. Yes, yes. Um, actually, the evening that the Arrowcross came to take the whole family to the Danube, he thought he was going to die, so he ate a whole bar of chocolate that he'd been given for Christmas. And then he didn't die, so he had to jog a, a lot because of that one bar of, of chocolate. So that's the funny part of the story. Uh, and also the fact that they survived. And then the... Um, so Hungary was liberated by the Russians, which was sort of a bittersweet liberation because then they occupied Hungary and most of Europe, well, Eastern Europe for the next 40, 50, 60 years. So uh, the factory was nationalized. They came to the, all Hungarian business was nationalized. 
and they came to the to the factory and they demanded for the recipe for unicum and for the keys to the factory. And my great uncle Bela stayed behind and he handed over a fake recipe to the Hungarian government. And my father, my grandfather escaped. They, my grandfather took my father to the train station and they, they said goodbye. And my father always tells the story of how they looked at each other and they thought that they would never see each other again. So they started laughing. That was the only thing they could, they could do. So my father took a train. He had the recipe in his pocket. He had nothing else in a shoe bag. And, um, he hung underneath a truck to go over the border. And then he arrived in Italy and in Trieste, he saw the British flag, which to him was the naval fleet was their support. And he thought, ah, freedom. Then my father, my grandfather escaped by corrupting a Russian official in, and he was on a Russian truck in an upturned barrel. And uh, they met again in, in, uh, in Italy. And then they sailed to the U.S., uh, they arrived on Ellis Island. My father's name is not on the list of people on Ellis Island because they, they sent him a letter maybe 10 years ago saying if he wanted his name on the book, but they told him he had to pay like $10,000 or something. $10,000. Maybe, maybe it was 5000 You know, maybe it was even 1000 but he thought, you know, why should I pay to be in the book? You know, I've been there f for real. But anyway, so he spent uh, a while on this island, and then they were actually given entry to the U.S. because they had this recipe, meaning they, the recipe was actually a proof that they had an ongoing business that they wanted to start in the U.S., and they did. But that took a while. My father's first job was selling vacuum cleaners in the Bronx. It made him, to this day, the best salesperson I've ever met. Then he started working in the world of wine and spirits, Started working for Alexis de Lichine. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, and then he started working with the Gancha family. And so at the beginning he was selling wine, and then he, he was in Chicago, and then in New York. Then he got married. He had five children, who to this day live in the U.S. And in the meantime, the Hungarian government started making unicum without the name Zvak underneath, underneath and based on the fake recipe. But my grandfather won this this um, sort of a um, groundbreaking court case against the Hungarian state so that they could not export it outside of the Iron Curtain. So basically they had maintained the rights for Unicum and for Zwak and for the round bottle in Western Europe. So they started producing it again in Italy because it's a big Amaro country. And that's when my father met my mother. By this time he had separated, he had divorced. So my brother and I were, were born in Tuscany uh, my mother's English, so in a very sort of mixed background. And they said, you know, why not Tuscany? My mother didn't have a home. My father didn't have a home. So they thought Tuscany sounded nice. So we grew up in Wine County. We grew up in um, uh, with, with Chianti Classico all around us. And then we, we used to spend our summers in Bolgheri, which is this really small village, an hour and a quarter south of Florence, which today sounds really fancy because Ornelaya... Sassicaia made that, but when we were little, it was just olive groves. Should I go on? Oh, definitely. Okay. I'm kind of curious what happened to your great uncle, Bella. Oh, so he was, um, he ended up working in the factory like a regular worker. And then he was sent to a work camp. There were sort of these gulags in the Hungarian Pusta, which is a great plain. It sounds so, you know, Eastern European, the Great Plain, but there were, there's Hungary's flat. There's this big sort of plain called the Pusta. 
and um, he, so he was given, he was sent to a work camp there and uh, he almost died. And um, he then, with his wife, Dodo, and then they were given, they escaped. They also managed to escape and he came to the U.S. also. And both my grandfather and my great uncle, who, by the way, didn't speak to each other. Um, they is, that, had, is that true? Yeah, they... They had this strange sort of rivalry. One of them in the business. Like who would survive, for instance? Like I <laughs> said I was going to survive. Yeah. Possibly. They would uh, They would come into the office in the morning. And the same office where my father used to sit is still there today. And they would, they would, a lawyer would sit in between them. And one would say, will you please tell my brother I say good morning? And the other one would say, yeah, okay. Please say my brother. I also say good morning. And Bela was the one who was actually in charge of all of the... At least they said please. Like, yes. <laughs> you know? They had different uh, football teams. The one was for Throdi, one for, was for another one. So anyway, so they both came out to the US and they died one month from each other. And they never saw the end of the court case, let alone they never saw the fact that then, what I'm about to tell you. So... We're living in Italy, a sort of rather sort of crazy Austro-Hungarian English family. We're making Unicum in Italy, but it's literally a mom and pop operation. My, my, my father, at the time we had no marketing, we were doing PR, they were doing Unicum tastings in, in Italy. But to this day, Unicum is, is, Italy is our most important market. If you go to any Italian bar, I mean, by bar you mean where you have a co your coffee, you'll find a bottle of Bundikum on the, on the shelf. I see it everywhere in Italy. Yeah. And to the point where I thought it was Italian. Italian. And Italians think it's Swiss because it's got the cross on it. So, so we, yeah, um, wine was a big part of our lives. My father was the marketing director for the Chianti Classico Consorzio. Uh, all of our friends were, were in the wine world. Some of them. It was, you know, it was a, it was a still beautiful world today, but then it was even more beautiful. This world of food, wine, old school journalists, uh, tastings, PR more than. Was that like a dig a, at me? You're saying the no. old school. Okay. I'm just making sure. No, Not no. like these newfangled podcasters <laughs> who have ruined everything. Back then it was amazing. I'm just, I'm kidding. Yeah. No, more than you. <laughs> I would direct this comment to, a more sterile approach maybe to um, a more trip advisor approach to, to wines. Um, they say that civilization begins when the scoring ends. You know, the, yeah, kind of. I kind of agree with that. Um, my mother, strange enough, who was English at the time, was, would write, was a journalist. Actually, was a very well-known journalist. She used to write for, because she was not talking about food and wine, and she used to write for the New York, uh, the New York Times, sorry, travel section for food and wine for gourmet. She went under the name Anne Marshall, which was her um, maiden name. And people would, um, I mean, she was writing really, really great articles about really great Italian uh, restaurants and wineries. And she would take me with her. I went to a French school just to complicate my life. And I had Wednesdays off. So Wednesdays, if she was writing an article, she would take me with her. And we went to these amazing restaurants. So our life was all about food, wine, uh, drink glasses of unicum after dinner. Well, we were children. Always having wine people or some strange unicum salesman from some strange country. My father started doing the fruit distillates again, the, the palinkas. 
which is a, something traditional to Hungary. To Hungary. It's, it's the Hungarian grappa. Only, it's not made only with grapes like grappa is, but it's made of all kinds of fruits. Hungarians will distill wood if they can. You know, <laughs> They'll distill you if you're not careful. Um, That's what happened to my big toe. <laughs> they, they started, luckily, I was able to escape, but I'm, I'm partially <laughs> distilled. That's yeah, so my. Um, so then in 1987, the Hungarian state was broke, like all communist states. And a friend of my father's was going there to do business where they started privatizing, a bit like China does today, meaning they, they, they started liberalizing the economy before they did the, the politics. And a friend of my father's was there to sort of fish around to see if there was anything he should be doing. And he, he went and met this really sort of high official high-ranking official who was doing, wanted to do a deal with him, and he puts on a table a bottle of unicum, and he says, may I, may I give you a glass of unicum? And this friend of the family said, I don't drink that S-H. Oh, yeah, I like that. I only drink the original. Oh, 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 oh. You stole that from my friend, Peter Zwak. So the official says, what do you mean? There's still Zvaks who are alive? And he's like, yeah, they do. They live in Italy. He says, we'll bring them here because I want to sell their factory back to them. <laughs> so, so when my father got wind of this, that the factory was actually for sale, he packed our bags. We came home from school one day and he said to us in his very strong Hungarian accent, because Hungarians always put the accent on the first syllable. He said, the children, we are going home. So, so off we went. I was at by the age 12. My brother was 15. We went back to Hungary. And it's a long, long story. I won't go into it. But they put the company on the market. It was an open bid. So there were several bidders, a couple of multinationals and my father. And my father was rather penniless, to be really honest. Anyway, he won the bid. So he was able to buy back the, the business. And um, and that's actually quite extraordinary because there are no. I mean, if you think about it, all of Eastern European old brands don't. If they exist today, they're usually in the hand of a multinational. There is sort of like a, a girl interrupted syndrome. I mean, there's this big interruption, and there are no there's very little family business in Eastern Europe. So, so anyway, so my father buys the business back, and then. And then here we, here we are today. I mean, what I forgot to say is that Unicum has always been sort of like this really, really big deal in Hungary. It's always been a, the national drink of Hungary. And my father again sat behind his father's desk. And then he was able to, my brother and I started working in the, in the business, obviously. And, you know, we're not rocket scientists, but we're taking it, we're carrying, carrying the business ahead. So he was able to hand it over to us, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and um, and so we are the sixth generation who's taking care of this of this business, very proudly so. And uh, my father unfortunately passed away two years ago. Um, but he sounds like the most fascinating guy. I mean, he was the yeah. Hungarian ambassador to the United States. Yeah, for I, a while. I skipped. Yeah, I skipped that. But yeah, he was then made the first Hungarian ambassador to Washington D.C. Which um, is kind of crazy that he left there in exile, went to the United States, yes. and then came back and then became the ambassador. Yes. And he had to give up his American citizenship to become ambassador because you couldn't have dual citizenship. And he had whole held on to that American citizenship. It was a big deal for him. 
And when we arrived in Washington, D.C., we had our British citizenship from my mother's side. And he was in line with all of the, you know, Turks, Romanians, Hungarians, whatsoever. He was bellowing, but I am the Hungarian ambassador. <laughs> Nobody cared. And we were sort of in the fast track with our... I British say that part. a lot, just like waiting for coffee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How can you... Do you know who I am? Yeah. This is taking forever. And we arrived in Washington, D.C. with two dogs, a parrot, um, a snake, and uh, chipmunks or something like that. I mean, we What were, kind of snake are we talking about here? Uh, something... It's not Rhodesian Ridgeback. That's a, that's a dog. But it was like... Um, I don't know. It was, it was He was called Lester the Molester. He was my brother's snake. So we were an unusual ambassadors let's put it that way but very good ambassadors the first thing my parents did was they brought to washington dc the best hungarian chef and they turned the i mean the way they knew how to communicate was through food wine and drinks so they they started organizing these incredible dinners at the embassy and um and they were they were the new hot ticket in town because instead of having these really st stuffy um, uh you know, diplomatic ordeals. They were just having great food, great wine, gypsy music. Anyway, so then we came back from Hungary. My father went into politics. They tried to kill him a couple of times because he, he decided to fight against the Hungarian mafia. And in all of this, the business is going on, Unicum. And in all of this, my brother and I, um, well, traveling around the world, doing our own things, learning, learning, sort of making our way in life, but with the idea, obviously, to... To live in Hungary and to be in Hungary. Hungary's a, Hungarian is a very like, difficult language, just FYI. So I started working in the wine world. And um, my life is, you know, <laughs> was short and uninteresting compared to what I just told you. But I think the fact that I'm sitting here in front of you sane is already a, quite a miracle. You know, my family was really, really... One of the most interesting, challenging, quirky, deranging family on the on the on the planet, but we loved each other very dearly, and we loved food and wine, and and unicum. So so I did my universities, and I decided that I wanted to be involved in the wine world. So I studied wine making in many different countries, and then uh, in Hungary you had this unexplored jewel, which was the region of Tokai. And I think you're going to have to ask me a question. I need to take a breath, a breath because the history of Tokai is even more interesting and um, adventurous than the one of, of my father. So you want me to go right into that? Or well, I'm kind of curious what your dad was like as a person before. Oh, we, okay. Because he sounds, you know, a lot more interesting than me frankly. So rather than me asking a question, I'm, I'm just a little curious about what he was like. Well, when I asked my mother why she married him, she said he was the most unusual man I'd ever met. I say that he was a mixture between a rather irascible Gandhi, that he was very thin, but also very determined. Inspector Clouseau, in that he, he bluffed his way through half of his life, but masterfully he wasn't afraid of making mistakes you know i find that so many people my age i'm 38 but of our generation you see they had nothing to lose and they didn't have a face to lose whereas we have a lot to lose even if it's if it's not you know 
big family businesses, but we we have our we live in a different era. So I find that we're much less prone to just jump, be brave, and take risks. So he, um, yeah. So he was he was all the time. He was just diving into life, and sometimes it went well, and sometimes it didn't. But he always had Inspector Clouseau's sort of way of convincing you that in fact it was all great. Are you then, saying that when he came home, there was a guy who attacked him in his own house? That, that <laughs> never? Uh, no, but he was his own worst attacker. He would come home and um, and he had this manic sort of exercise routine that he would do naked um, in front of the news. That's this, how I like to approach the news as well. Yes, you know. But, this was, he did also if you were bringing friends home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My dad used to walk around in his underwear a lot. Yeah. I was very, very embarrassed by that. Yes, I was very, very embarrassed with, with, by my father. He would come and pick us up in school wearing a Loden coat, which is an Austrian coat, and a Loden hat with a feather in it. And he had this very long Jewish nose. And at the end of it, it always had a drip. And uh, we used to be terribly embarrassed by him. It took many years. My, my brother remained embarrassed of him all of his life. Um, I didn't at the end. I thought he was great. It was so funny. I mean, he, he did what, whatever he want, wanted. He would arrive at the dinner party. He would sit there. He would give a speech. Maybe he didn't even have to give a speech. And then he would decide it was time to leave. After five minutes that he'd been sitting, maybe he was the guest of honor. He would get up, leave. And he was wearing red socks. And... Um, and he would do something. He would always bring his own little box of paprika with him to dinner and pepper because he never thought food and paprika. That they would have the good stuff. Yeah. And, and the cocoa for his coffee because he liked cocoa in his coffee. And then he would always take notes, copious notes, about everything. But they weren't interesting notes. It wasn't as if he was writing about. He would sort of just catalog his day and sort of say, okay, so I just had dinner or something. And... So had, and then he would lose the pen or the little booklet. That, so then half of the room of the dinner party was looking for his booklet. I mean, he was, he was, he was, a, he was an interesting man. And um, so, yeah, so he was, he, was, he was really, really, really interesting. One of these people that just one, one in a million. Um, did you ask him how he was a father or how was he like a man? I didn't remember. The did question. he have stages where he developed? Were there parts where you said, boy, he seems different now that he's a bit older in his relation maybe to you or maybe to his I work? I think he got worse. <laughs> he became more and more eccentric. <laughs> he became more and more eccentric. In work, he didn't change. He was, um, he was always very, very positive, which is something that people, I think, really don't understand how important that is. You know, there was... Nothing in work that could happen. He would always, he would always sort of see a positive side to it, and and you know, I maybe that's what I miss about him the most. You know, so if somebody who you go to and you just spend two minutes with him, and he says, "Ah, it's gonna be fine." You know, he could rejoice about the the dog dying because he would say it's a great opportunity to have a new dog. You know, <laughs> he, he he was not. He was almost sort of dysfunctionally able of being negative and I think in a work life but not only in work life I think it's, that's a very very great quality and you either have it in you but you can learn you can learn not to complain about the rain you know one, one can not complain about the rain but anyway so he got worse I would say as a father he got better because he became he started aging so he became he became sort of less uh, um 
I always said he was sort of like this explosion of, he was, it was like, he was like a fire, or he was like a vortex. And he sort of softened out um, the latter part of his, of his years. And uh, I mean, he wasn't an easy father, but we loved, we, we loved each other dearly and, 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 and deeply. And we had a sort of very full relationship with my mother, with all of us. So, you know, he died. It's always terrible when people died, but there was nothing in his life that he didn't do. He had zero regrets. I don't know. I don't know how many of us. I hope many of us. But um, I think that's really a great achievement. He had really zero regrets. There's nothing he didn't. He wanted to do and he hadn't done. And I think also relationship-wise, that's probably true. You and your brother started working at the distillery in the early two thousands. Uh, yes. And I, in the meantime, already had the winery in Tokai. So I was always more the one in charge of everything to do with wine within, within the company. And my brother was always more the one in charge of the, these very high-end fruit distillants, palinkas. Apart from the, of, of course, Unicum and, and all of the rest. And then our sort of roles also mm, diversified in that I became the one who traveled more and he became the one who was more sort of hungry based. And um, I started working. So I started my own winery by this time in Tokai. We're speaking about the early 90s. And... And you had been drawn to that because of the wine culture as a child that you had seen? Yes. And partly because really wine was also actually part of the company. Um, I mean, we had been making and distributing wine since the mid-19, before the war. We found this old certificate which gave us the license to distribute wines in the 1940s, Tokais in particularly. So wine was always part of our be very big part of our of our company and, and culture and the family also. And somehow I, I always remember my father saying, the wine world is a world of gentlemen and um you you should be in it. And I think by gentlemen he meant that it was a world of uh it was it was a very interesting, beautiful world where you could meet lots of interesting people, which was very still tied to things that we cherish in life, which are Again, you know, food and the and the, the way of living and um, the way of sitting around the table, the way of. I mean, wine is is very much, I think, a metaphor of of how of how we we live we live our lives. But anyway, so in Hungary at the time, we had this incredible wine region, it was Tokai. So. It's a bit like if you sort of um, sitting next to a gold mine and don't and don't know it. And I think some of us suspected it, but none of us really knew it. But we knew that Tokai Tokai we had to do something with it. So in the sixteen mid sixteen hundreds seventeen hundreds, Tokai was the most famous wine in the world. So you had kings, popes, queens, all of the musicians, all of the artists, writing, singing. Applauding uh, Tokai, you had. I mean, it's, it's a ever abused line, but it's true. You had uh, Louis the, the Fourteenth, who, who said, "This is the wine of kings, the king of wines." He used to keep it for his lover, Madame de Pompadour. Um, you had the um, Catherine the Great. She used to keep a whole 
army of, of Cossacks to escort the wine from Tokai to St. Petersburg. You have Goethe's Faust, who um, drinks Tokai. You have Schubert, who writes a lead called Lob der Tokaya, praise Tokai. I mean, you have a, we have a book on quotations on Tokai, which is sort of very, very, very thick. So it was literally the, the wine at court also because it was invented before the great sweet wines. And let's not forget that in a time when there was no sugar, sweet wine was, was sort of very, very, very valuable. So at the local market, Tokai grapes, botrytized grapes, were sold at the same price of gold, literally. If you stole Tokai grapes, your hand got cut off. I mean, they have all of these records about these things. Um, That's why I was glad I originally started with three. Yeah, and then you came to Tokai. Hungary can be very dangerous to this day. So, Botrytis was actually discovered in Tokai. I didn't know that. If you look up Botrytis Cinere, it will say, you know, discovered in Tokai in the mid-1600s, they say by this gentleman called Mate Sepsi Latsko. There's a legend that says that the harvesters were, um, the farmers were called to war. That part I'm sure is true because you, Tokai was always being invaded, you know, in this, in this particular time by the Turks. So they went to war and then when they came back, they found that the vines were dark with, with this strange mold called Botrytis. You know, if you think about it, it's so funny. Wineries around the world are sort of trying to protect themselves from mold. And here we are sort of um, evoking it like uh, like in some sort of uh, in a ritual. Because uh, I say it's when mold turns to gold. Uh, it's this very, yeah, it's this very particular mold that only happens in very few parts of the world because of certain factors, and Tokai is one of them. And... Um, so we don't know exactly how it was discovered. I, I think uh, partly maybe this, the legend is true, but, but what we do know is that people like Paracelsus was going to Hungary, spending time in Hungary, the, the scientist, because he thought that the rootstocks had gold in them, for instance. And he didn't find gold, but he started describing this very strange gray, dark gray rot. So in the beginning, something else that is that we, we know today uh, is that uh, botrytis in Hungary is, is uh, like on on, um, on steroids, meaning that it's it's more concentrated than botrytis elsewhere. So if you take botrytized grapes and you pluck them one by one and you put them in the winery, then you walk over them once and at the bottom of the tank there's a tap and you open the tap and if you're lucky, like two drops come out. Those famous two drops is the legendary essentia. So it's the free-run juice of the botrytized grapes. Now, this is not something that you can make wine out of. It is so thick. It's so concentrated. Because it doesn't start fermenting, really. Yeah, but also because it's so so thick. You, you can't, can't even filter it. So botrytis elsewhere isn't that concentrated. So essentia can typically go oh, from... See. There's really no Bordeaux essentia, for instance. No. I mean, you do have botrytized grapes, and if you crush them, you do get very high levels of concentration. But in Tokai, these levels in great vintages can go to, say, 800 grams, 50 grams of sugar per liter with an acidity of 15, 16, 17. So nowhere in the world does concentration reach these degrees. And I, I know that just makes me tick. Yeah. Think about it. Something is easy to make sugar. You know, you can, you can cook it. You can, you can make something sweet very, very simply. But to, to the idea that nature on its own would um, 
find this way of balancing itself. Because, I mean, let's rewind. Botrytis is a fungus. It drinks, pierces the skin of the grape and it drinks the water inside the grape, thus concentrating everything in the grape. And people tend to think that it concentrates the sugars, but that's not true. It concentrates the sugars and the acidity and everything else. That's why it can go for a long distance of time. That's why it's not just sweet. Yes, and that's why it's also so, it's got that sort of magic around it. It's different from other sweet wines. It's just much more complex, much more something about it, which is more. I think Tokai wines are not just wines. I think they're more than wines. I also think they're the best wines in the world. And I know that if I say it, it doesn't sound objective, but but it's true. There is nowhere, I mean, it's somewhere where nature has brought together really a, a, a miraculous phenomena and um and the hungarians like to put the emphasis on the first syllable as you said so when the essentia comes out first it's the most emphasized (laughs) so also hungarians are obviously terribly complicated people because instead of knowing what they're doing so turn which is to pick the whole bunch together and therefore a whole bunch will have some botrytized grapes and some healthy grapes and you press it like that so then you get a wine which is actually drinkable because essentia isn't, we've established it's too thick, it's too, uh, it's too concentrated. They say, okay, fine, we'll find out a system by which we make, we, we pick the botrytized grapes and, and we make, put them in the winery, and then we make a base wine, which is made of the healthy grapes. These are probably by now a bit sweet, so sort of like a late harvest wine. And chew this base wine, which is already fermented or is just finishing ferment, fermentation, we add the botrytized grapes in different quantities. So the more we add, the more concentration. That's the more sweet, but not just the more sweet, the more acidity also. And um, a second fermentation starts. So two fermentations. And then uh, you have to barrel age it for at least three years. Now, the famous and infamous word putonyosh is uh, nothing less than the the hod that the people used to pick the botrytis in. So it's a it's a wooden hod which contains twenty three kilograms of grapes. So when you see on a Tokai label three, four, five, or six put on your Tokai asu, it is because in the space wine that you have added either three times three hods. Or five, four times, or five times, or six times. So the higher the number of the putonyosh, the more concentrated the wine. Does that make sense? Because it sounds complicated, but in fact, it's not. And one of the things that you do that's interesting is you only make a six in terms of a tokayazu. Yeah, um, it's obvious the most difficult to make because you need a lot of botrytis for it, so you don't get it in every year. Uh, some people debate that the five putonyosh is actually more drinkable because it's more it's got less sugar so it's less concentrated so less sugar less acidity but i find that the six putonyosh is just I, I i just think there's nothing more beautiful than a good six putonyosh so yes we make the six putonyosh and we make a late harvest called milita named after an ancestor yeah. also named swag yeah sort of a muse of a poet is that yeah, that, that's the story. 
So I never met my grandparents, any of them, but we did have this legendary figure in our childhood. She was called Aunt Mitzi. She was actually called Maria, Z- Maria Zvak, but we called her Mitzi, Mitzi Neni. Neni is a Hungarian for sort of a respectful term for an elderly person. And she, uh, she was very Hungarian. She really had the Hungarian accent. And she used to tell to us all the time, because you see, I have buried three husbands. She did. She had buried three husbands. The last husband she she married, she was 80. She couldn't, they couldn't even kneel in front of the person marrying them. And she, anyway, she was a legendary beauty in Budapest. And she was the love of one of Hungary's most famous poets, was called Endre Odi, so the Hungarian Baudelaire. And he wrote poems and poems and poems and poems about her. And he called her Milita. And Milita is the Assyrian goddess of love. So the one the, who came before Venus, the Assyrian Venus. And I remember when I was looking for a name for my late harvest and I knew this story and I thought, I'm going to call it Milita, dedicated to, to Mitsineni. So I asked my mother what she thought about it because I thought, you know, maybe she won't want to be sort of, you know, on a wine label. It's a bit commercial, you know. My mother said, nonsense, nonsense, darling. She would be flattered. She was so vain. <laughs> So, so Milita, yeah, is, uh, and it's also very, very feminine wine and that it's very fresh, it's very light, it's very fruity, a romantic wine. So at the top, you've got the Six Boutonneur, which is a big, intense wine. And you've got Milita, which is more playful, more for sort of easier, if you want easier to drink, also for our wallets. And then we make the dry food mint which is a category which I believed in from the beginning mm, very, 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 very much. And remember, that beginning wasn't so long ago, really. No. So our first dry food mint was 2003. But in, you see, food mint, dry food mints were, were notoriously just sim- simply bad because people weren't, were concentrating on the sweet wines and during communism, all Tokai wines during communism were bad because they were just sort of, it's as if... You know, if, if you haven't lived it, it's so difficult to explain, but if somebody went to Burgundy today and said to all of the make the Burgundy winemakers, okay, from now on, this all belongs to me, so you can come and pick in the vine, work in the, in the vines, we are going to... Um, well, I feel like the church did try to do that at one, <laughs> at one time. It's been a while, though. <laughs> so, and then they basically, they take all of the vines and they remove one row so that they can go with through with tractors and then they try to really high yields and then they blend everything. So they blend, you know, all of the various Grand Cru's, they just blend them and then they oxidize them because they forgot them in a barrel. And then, so that's what happened in Tokai. By the way, something that Berlin and Tokai have in common is that the land was was classified by these Benedictine monks in, in Tokai and there were monks also in, in Burgundy. So the Tokai classification is one of the first of the world together with the Portuguese in the, in the late 1700s, in the mid 1700s, you you they were classifying vineyards into first class, second class, and first growth, second growth, and third growth vineyards. So again, before the big you know Bordeaux classification, you already had this classification, which is still alive today. Anyway, so so food mint was just sort of the the, the stuff you didn't use in your sweet wines, and it was put in a tank or in some barrels, and it tasted. Mint is, is, I love the grape variety because of its acidities, but acidity is something I have to know how to how to um, work with. So it would be very acidic, mostly oxidized, mostly you know bad dry wines coming out of Tokai. And 
I remember because of the terroir, which is this very old volcanic terroir, I thought, you know, here you have a great grape variety, this incredible terroir, and we're going to make the best white wines after Burgundy. I really believe that, and I actually still believe that. But after I said that, Tokai was the best wine in the world, I, I've lost my credibility. Um, I think great dry food means will, want, will, will eventually become the greatest dry white wines after Burgundy. How should I understand ferment as a grape variety and what's it like to grow? It's an autochthonous Hungarian grape variety. It's been grown in Tokai for, since the Roman times. It's very susceptible to botrytis. It's got beautiful acidities to it and also a lovely fruitiness. So it's not as flat maybe as Chardonnay is. So it's a very interesting grape variety because you, it's got a lot of backbone. It is very fruity. And you can go two-way with it. In Tokai today, they're sort of going two ways with it. Some people are trying to do more uh, of a Chablis style. So they are doing malolactic and trying to make it very round, very soft, I think flat, and taking away aging potential from it. I think it should look like a great Riesling. So you have that. For me, Rieslings have something in it which is if you took a violin chord and you, you pulled it, it's got that vibration in them. Uh, tension. Uh, tension. That's pleasant. Yes. And the same thing, food, food means have the same tension in them. So they have a fruitiness to them. On the, they also have floral notes. Lots of people say pear, but very floral, very fruity wines, yet they're also very creamy. If you make them the right way, they, they can be very long, very complex, very creamy, and they've got this incredible minerality because of the terroir. So they're very salty. So they're great food wines. And if you catch them right in the middle... They are on the one hand side fruity, so they got that fruit element, which I think is good because sometimes, you know, us wine geeks tend to go for two interesting wines, where I think wines are good when you actually really enjoy drinking them for your Sunday lunch. So sometimes, you know, when a wine is too mineral or too austere, it might it might not be a good thing. So I like in, when a food is good, it's also really, really pleasant wine to drink. It's got that fruit in it. And they age really well, we found out. Now, I did my first vertical, 10 years. At the beginning, we would write on the label aging potential six to eight years because we didn't know what to write. And then, so we tasted 10 years backwards. And what's funny is that the 2003, which is our first vintage, we made 4,254 bottles of it. I was fairly happy with it, but not really because it was sort of floral. It was a hot vintage. Floral was light. It was a very pretty wine, but I wanted it to be bigger. But what was so interesting was that after 10 years, it had gained all the depth that I didn't feel in it at the beginning. It was, it was like drinking the sea, a dark blue sea. It was, it was salty. We speak about 2003, which is a hot vintage, so not really high acidities. So it, had, it was more beautiful after 10 years than it was when we made it. So they do have aging potential, dry food mints. And when we started making in 2003, only three or four people were making them. And today, today is definitely starting to become a very, very interesting... Well, everybody makes dry food mints. Everybody makes it now, it mm. seems like. Yes, and some of them are really good, some of them less so. But I think we're going to be seeing more and more of them and more and more different styles. You know, some people are still making them just stainless steel, so you get very crisp, very light, very peary, crisp acidities... Some people are, I, are sort of over-extracting them, too much new oak. And, and you're kind of in the middle. Yes. You put it in wood for a while, and then you also put it in steel. Yes. And we also, old wood, so 
So no new wood. Well, we have to buy new barrels once in a while. So that's the only new oak we use. And um, yeah, I love it. I love dry food wines. I think they're great. And I think they're a great way to make Tokai wines known because it has Tokai on the on the label. So it is Tokai, yet it's a dry wine. So let's, let's not fool ourselves. I mean, we all know that great wines are sweet, but are great, but we also know that they are sweet wines and therefore people drink them less. And I think it's a great entry into into Tokai. So at least to get the, the name out there. Because obviously Tokai wines have been forgotten if you want from the world is you know 40 years of communism a long a long time when we when we started selling them again first of all they had a bad reputation second of all the, the market was saturated with was full of, of wines so uh, we had to rebuild the brand from scratch and the knowledge around it and um and today i think that all you know the wine books and all wine sommeliers and good restaurants and wine shops tokai is back on the map what regards the trade, but if I think for what regards the consumer, we still have a long way to go and that people are not walking into shops and saying, could I please have the 93 vintage of the Dubogo 6 Putonios? Because uh, obviously, you know, they don't know about it that much. So that's the next 20 years of work that we have as winemakers, maybe even more. Another great variety that's in that 6 Putonios is Harsh Lavalu. What's that like to grow and how is it different than Fermat? So... Harsh Levalu is literally translated into linden leaf because the, the leaves on the vines are the shape of a linden leaf. It is a slightly more floral grape variety, so it's got, not quite as uh, intense and stark as Furmint is. So it gives, um, I would say, more delicate wines. Uh, we're just starting to discover it as a winery because I'm just such a big Furmint fan. I love the character of food mint but i'm beginning to be very very intrigued by it they blend very well food mint and harsh revolu because it adds some again some floral notes to the to the food mint so we often our food mint might have sort of a 10 15 percent of harsh revolu in them but some people make 100 percent harsh revolus in tokai which are which are lovely lovely wines i still think tokai food mint is the number one grape variety in tokai and should remain that, but I do think that Hashavu is a very, very interesting grape variety. We also have a few more, but yeah, so food meat is the main grape variety. Oh. And I think that's what we should also concentrate on export-wise. I mean, if you think about it, Gruner Bertlina was an unknown grape variety internationally for a very long time, and now it's, you know, a very accepted grape variety. So I think uh, Stephen Spurrier once wrote about Dobogo food meat, he said, is, is food meat the new Gruner Bertlina? I think is a legitimate question. But you're also working with red grapes. Yes, well, that was another sort of mania of mine. I always, <laughs> yeah, I think that the greatest Pinot Noir outside of Burgundy is one day going to be grown in Tokai. <laughs> think about it. How many good Pinots have you had outside of Burgundy? And by what I mean is there are lots of good Pinots, but the, so the, the gap is is like... Sophia Lauren and the other women. Uh, well, sometimes Germany and Alsace are quite good at it, and they're yes. not so far away from Hungary. So yes. I guess it's possible, right? Yeah, but I think that Tokai could make better Pinot Noirs than Alsace in Germany. I think it could make, because the terroir is so similar. There's so many similarities with Burgundy. And um, so we decided to plant. I, I studied winemaking both in, in France at the, with the Drouin family and also in uh, Burgundy. What was that like? 
God, I loved it. I loved it because I saw the 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 degree of. Um, Did you see a family again? The family element was 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 definitely interesting. But what really interested me was this was was the work in the vineyards. I mean, I mean, uh, I don't remember which the name of which of the brothers is the is the is the viticulturalist. Uh, it was Laurent. But I remember, I remember him working, walking up and down in the Morashi the day the harvest was going on, and for two days, all he was he was pulling his hair out because he wasn't sure he'd picked the right day, meaning that day or the next day. And then I remember, I mean, the care that goes into the vineyards in Burgundy and the the study of these vineyards is something just mind-boggling. And then. It was a very feared wine winemaker would uh, would walk up and down the the sorting um, what they called you know when the grapes come into the wine room you have to sure sort the them. sorting table yeah sorting table sort of like a high school teacher and we're terrified of her and so I learned a, I learned a lot about about really being basically a, a maximalist in certain certain fields I mean some of the small burgundy makers are, are fanatics. Are, crazy <laughs> in a good way um and then i went to new zealand you know completely different pinot noirs but really really interesting also and uh, and then in tokai started looking around and started thinking ah, i think we could make a really good pinot noir here so we planted first half a hectare and another half a hectare very volcanic soil first vintages have been good but there's no, there were not many the pinot wasn't coming out because the terroir was so strong. So you were smelling Tokai terroir and you weren't smelling Pinot Noir yet. What are the signatures of that? Salt, salt, salt. On the well, so no. So on the nose, it's uh, minerality. So it's like stones. And then on the in the palate, it's it's just salt. And so I was a bit worried. I thought, am I going to make Pinot Noir? Because I didn't smell Pinot Noir. And then as the roots of the vines go further down. It's coming out. So now, like the, as of the 2010 vintage, it's starting to have the typical Pinot notes. And um, as, I, as I speak about it, I'm feeling like this little chill going up my back because <laughs> it's so exciting, you know, the idea. And it's going to take a while. I mean, these vines are now five years old. So I think we're going to need like 10 more years to start making really deep Pinot Noirs. But I think we're going to make a very, very good Pinot Noir in Tokai. And um, we make very little of it. But it's very, uh, but we, we completely obviously sell all of it every year and people people love it. It's very unusual. So it's the only Pinot Noir in Tokai. But it turns out there's a historical precedent. Yeah. Um, there's this great book in which um, it's called the Tokai Atlas. And it sort of uh, traces the history of, of Tokai, both from a grape and land point of view and it showed that before phylloxera there were red varietals in Tokai so there were the typical sort of Austro-Hungarian ones which could be like you know Blaufrankisch, Kekfrankosch, uh, Zweigelt and then they had Malbec go figure and then obviously Cabernet Sauvignon and then they had Pin Pinot Noir so there was the region did make red grape varietals and I actually think that it should today also but here we're going to a long debate also with the local producers who are totally against this 
for now, maybe maybe they're right. You know, for now we should get food mint back on the map and Tokai back on the map. But I think that long term, they're going to be red wines made in Tokai, and these are going to be extraordinary wines because again, this this. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tasted some of the Etna uh, wines in Sicily. I have. So, yeah, so it is volcanic. So I love the, I love, for instance, I love Etna wines, one of my favorite wines. But I love, so I love, I love anything which is volcanic, basically. I think you're very spoiled. If you make wine on volcanic soil, everything else afterwards tastes a bit boring, a bit flat. And so Tokai has this, this incredible, incredible soil. And both in the whites, and the, but also in the, in the sweets, it really makes some very, very unique, complex wines. It makes them age incredibly well. Since the time you've arrived till now, there's been quite a bit of change in the region in terms of the end of communism and then the rise of capitalist industry. and Market financial capitalism. Financial capitalism hasn't reached Tokai, which I guess is a good thing. But also a bad thing in that it's still a very poor region. Um, the further away you go from Western Europe, the closer you come to poverty. So some wine growing regions and in so Tokai is in northeastern Hungary. So we're 100 kilometers from the Ukrainian border and very close to the Slovakian border. So it's a very poor region of Hungary and nothing really is made there except for Tokai. So it is still a challenge, I think, for the region to to sort of thrive because it's, yeah, because it's a poor region. Having said that, when I arrived in Tokai, it looked like a well, it looked like a war zone. You had I mean, it was so poor and so bleak and so dark. In a way, it was like a black and black and white film. And then the only color that there was was in the cellars because then you were going to these cellars and you had these golden wines and you thought, my God, how is this possible? And a bit you have that same feeling today because, you know, it really doesn't, Tokai doesn't compare to, from an infrastructural point of view, to say Napa Valley or Montalcino or even some of the great Austrian uh, wine regions. They have, they're, they're so clever, you know, they've got all these Michelin star restaurants and so it's still quite, you know, still stood still in time. But you go down to these cellars. And by the way, these cellars, because, again, they were hiding the wine from various marauding armies, um, these cellars are sort of 20 meters deep and you can't recognize them as cellars. There'll be a, a door in the wall that looks like the door of a, of a something, of a house. But instead, they're, they're, you go into these very, very, very deep cellars, very low and uh, and you have these these barrels with the sort of golden nectars in them. So it's it's still quite shocking. Once I went, to, I I held a, a golden bar in my hand um, in a Swiss in the vault of a Swiss bank. And um, I remember I was with my brother, and and he had a typical sort of male reaction. He was like, "Cool, <laughs> this thing is so heavy." And I looked at it and I thought. Mm, it's got the same color of Tokai. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and yeah, in a way, for many years, Tokai was really the Hungarian gold, the liquid gold of Hungary. I mean, it's mentioned the Hungarian national anthem. All of this to say that it's changed a lot. Obviously, the first thing that's changed is, is, is in quality. So in the how we grow the grapes in the vineyards, how we make the wines compared to communist times. Obviously, infrastructure. I mean, we've painted our houses, roads, 
restaurants, hotels. So it's changed a lot, but it's still, it's still, I think, uh, quirky enough in that it's remained, it's still very much off the beaten track, let me put it that way. Um, so it must be interesting to compare the export market and reception of the Tokai that you make with the export market and reception of the family distillery, the Zwack Unicum. Yes, so Unicum is very, very bitter. So one typical selling technique is you go to somebody who doesn't like bitter. <laughs> no. So before bitter started becoming popular in the US again, which is a very recent phenomenon, I would say probably five years, would you agree with that? Maybe three? I think that's about right, yeah. Mm. So the Anglo-Saxon palate has never liked bitters, right? It's something very sort of some countries of Europe, mostly Italy, Austria, Germany. You finish your meal with something bitter. Italy also coffee and espresso. One thing which is delicious to do is if you drink your espresso and then at the bottom of it you have that little foam, you just pour a little drop of, of unicum in that or another bitter, another amaro, swirl it around in the espresso cup and you drink it. That's a very typical Italian custom. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, it's good. Grappa's so, too, to do it that yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you fin you're used to finishing your meal with something bitter. Anyway, so the Anglo-Saxon palate of England also is not, they don't like bitters. Americans never like bitters. When I used to taste unicum with people here in New York, I remember once a wine buyer in a restaurant midtown, the sales guy from, from the wholesaler with whom I was working was taking me around. And he could tell it was just a dead day for him because he knew he, was gonna sell, he wasn't going to sell a bottle. So he took me to this restaurant midtown. And I knew I wasn't going to sell a bottle, but I thought I'd give it my best, you know. So I'm telling him about unicum and the eyes drink he, he tasted he looked at me and his eyes really said to me you, you must you, you must be joking I mean if you really think that you can sell this I mean mind you my grandmother used to say ah do we make a living off of this she didn't particularly like Unicom either so I said to him you know apologetically you know it is an acquired taste and he said honey I'm acquiring the bottle why would I need to acquire the taste as well so um with a guy like that you would make him first taste Unicum, and then you will make him taste the Tokai. And he was like, oh my God, this tastes so good, he would say of the Tokai. So it was an easy way to sell the Tokai. So in a way, made for each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that was... you had the perfect job. Yeah. Oh, you don't like bitter. Yeah. Oh, look what I've got. Exactly. So that was my selling technique. But obviously, well, actually, you know what was funny is that in America today, finally, I am selling both drinks to the same people, which are... That must be almost... Just shocking to you, and it's but it's 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 like I love it because I'm going to high end restaurants, to high end cocktail bars, or to to people who know their drinks and actually sometimes know their drinks more than I do. Meaning they come up with these obscure bitters, which I hadn't even heard of, and they both they know what Tokai is, they know what Unicum is, they know what bitters are, they know what herbs and spices are, they know what volcanic soil is, they know what volcanic yeah. soil is, and that's something very rare. And I have to really give credit to the American food and wine industry and spirits industry because, it, you know, maybe it's because of the competitiveness of New York restaurants or New York in general. There are places like that, obviously, elsewhere in America, but just fewer that you really have to know your stuff. And these people really know their stuff. So, um, so for the first time in my life, uh, I'm selling both drinks to the same accounts. And I love it. Before, it would have been more, Unicum would have been more sort of, uh, well, in America, mostly unsellable outside of the Hungarian community or Italian restaurants. 
or you would be going to sort of sports bars because they would, they would shoot it. Kind of like Jägermeister shots, yes, something like that. except that Jäger is sort of like a Sweeter, child's drink not as good. compared to... Uh, yeah. to you, you, you were the one who said not as good. I just said it was... No, it's not lighter. as good. I'm happy to... <laughs> in case anyone didn't hear me, not as good. So, um, but traditionally, Unicum is... is um, it sells to countries where there are, there's an Amaro culture, which in Europe would be the surrounding countries, so Eastern European countries, Italy, G Austria, Germany. Now the US is, is growing a lot. China, because they like medicinal drinks. And Tokai is today sold all over the world, I would say. Obviously, we're speaking about, you know, it's a niche market high-end, so... But America's done a very good job. England has done a very good job. I have to... The places where the, the trade, and by trade I mean the top sommeliers, the top wine writers, wine journalists, master of wines, have actually taken the time to really, really study Tokai. That's where it's also done well. So, for instance, in England... Uh, at the beginning, people from the, the, the staff from Decanter magazine didn't know how to taste Tokai, and they knew it. They knew they weren't Tokai experts, and they came time and time again. Master of Wines have come to Tokai countless of times, and they've tasted none. They now have a palate for Tokai. Well, they, the Hugh Johnson thing had to help. Yes, it did. It really did. I love Hugh. He's a hard not to. I think hard not to, and he's a lovely, lovely man, and and. Um, He's one of those old school wine journalists I was telling you about before. But anyway, so so I think America has done that. I think the American journalist, it's been easier for England. That's closer. But um, but otherwise, yeah, New York is a great market for Tokai. I mean, I go around and, yeah, I love dry food. I mean, you know, something you don't hear very often in other countries of the world. So it's always, it's always fun to be, um, to be here, definitely. As opposed to other markets. And it turns out you're going to share with us the recipe of the Zach Unicom before you go. Mm, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Isabella Zach, she's selling beverages that have a long history and that are shrouded in a bit of mystery. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Isabella Zwack of the Zwack Distillery in Hungary and also the Bongo in Tokai. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.